Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the Frankenstein School. Writer, analyst, Jeffrey Tubin is with us. Welcome. to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Murmurradio.com is the website. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. If you want any time access to the show, which you can have, should you subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. If you have a subject you would like me to handle on the show, Email me, murmurradio at gmail.com. The form, the form uh, is email me the subject. I will match it with a guest, and I will do the rest with the guest. And I would bring you on if you want to be brought on. If you don't, listen, share, talk, discuss. Murmur Radio. Welcome. Welcome back. Every murmur, it's one subject and one guest. Today, really excited, really psyched to have a writer, a multilingual brain, a author, and I've always wanted to say this. I've been waiting to say this since I knew he was coming on the show. CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. I think he should be called CNN's chief illegal analyst because there's so much illegality in the world. I don't think that rolls quite off the tongue as CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, but nevertheless, he writes for The New Yorker, uh, and one of his New Yorker pieces in 1994 led to a book in 1997 called The Run of His Life, The People versus OJ, and that book became a series, and we'll talk all about that today because that's really today's subject. He's written other books on known figures, Patty Hearst, Monica Lewinsky. He's interviewed Elian Gonzalez. He's interviewed Martha Stewart. I know he did an interview article on Roger Stone. So he deals in the nonfiction. He deals principally in the nonfiction. But today's subject is what happens when that nonfiction gets transposed into fiction. 
And today is not really about true stories, true stories that become fiction. It's more about anthropology, history, real history that becomes real art, as oxymoronic as that sounds. Twist that all together as we are wont to do, and today's subject is art from anthropology. One of my definitions of art is a transpositioning, taking something and churning it into something. So everything an artist outputs is de facto a facsimile or is de facto a metaphor. And that metaphor is open to countless amounts of interpretation. But what happens when that metaphor, the DNA of that metaphor, is built from something known, something historical? A person, now I'm not talking about your uncle or your cousin, unless your uncle or cousin has done something that's in the public discourse, in the public record. I'm talking about anthropology, the collective agreement that things are happening all over the world and beyond. And what happens when those proteins becomes art? What is the upside? What is the downside? Jeff, as I said, 1994, I want to locate it there, although he actually started his anthropological art training. He was an associate counsel for uh, Lawrence Walsh during the Iran-Contra affair and during the Oliver North criminal trial. So his eyes have seen anthropology, and from his eyes, <laughs> and from said eyes, has become reporting, has become journalism, has become literature, and from those articles have become art. Now, he is not a practiced artist as such. Now, we could say there is an art to anthropology. I will firmly say there is an art to what Jeff has done, meaning observing, documenting, contemporaneously noting and writing and serving into the public discourse what we consider anthropology. What we consider history. Do we want to make a distinction between history and anthropology? I just want to get off the idea that today is about what happens when true stories become fiction. It's not that simple. And it's not that new. It's not new, new practice. We can go back to Shakespeare taking real histories and, and synthesizing them into his own works. Now, the people who went to see Shakespeare's plays knew that these were people, and sometimes, yes, myths of record. Let's say, can a myth be of record? Be that as it may, uh, these were histories being made into drama, expanded, contracted, mostly in Shakespeare's company, expanded. Cymbeline is still going on somewhere. So this is not a new, new practice. We look at literature. We look at Truman Capote in Cold Blood. We look at Thomas Wolfe. We look at what we would call the new journalism, how the new journalism actually bordered on, not bordered on the fiction, but bordered on the art. These were artists taking the real and at least pushing that real, pushing that anthropology through the birthing canal of art and coming up with something. And Jeff Tubin has been part of that process. Now, his book, 1997, The Run of His Life, The People vs. O.J., was made into a rather celebrated series in 2016, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. And that was developed by Ryan Murphy. He's now in a mainstream practice of taking this real real and making it into art or saying it's art or acknowledging it as art. And I don't know if that diminishes it. Does it diminish the O.J. trial to make it into art? Does it cheapen it? It brings it maybe to more people. It certainly brings it to a new generation of people. We're talking about the work of fiction came out 20 years after the principal articles by Jeff. What does time do to ready anthropology as art? It's kept us at a distance. We look at historically Hollywood, let's say, has trouble doing films of the temperature in the temperature, meaning when there's war on, and there seems to be always war on, but in the height of historical war, there are very few war films because it's bad for business. 
So anthropology into art benefits from time. We have advanced hindsight. <laughs> we can look at these facts, figures, places, swaths of history. We can look at OJ not only in and of itself as a trial, but what was going on in LA at the time. Art allows that smaller picture to sit in a picture, and that's robust art. Speaking of the head of a pin, <laughs> uh, there is a character in the 2016 The People vs. O.J. Simpson that is Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs> a character eventually shows up Jeffrey Tubin. So again, anthropology as art is often the height of meta. Law and order. How about law and order? I used to work for law and order criminal intent. Law and order is the height of this concept. Writers sitting in rooms reading newspapers. Now, again, it underscores the fact that this act is a transposition. Ryan Murphy, Dick Wolf, and his showrunners are transposing the real. And there's a third rail there. There's a danger there that you will accept art as fact. Never do that. Oh, my God. What are you doing? Never accept it as fact. Accept it as a stimulus to do your own work on it. Accept it as a light to shine and maybe you to push back against. Never accept it as gospel truth. I don't think Jeff does. I don't think Dick Wolf does. At its nadir, you could say this kind of transposition is exploitation. I don't think it is in Jeff's case because Jeffrey really wasn't orchestrating this into art. He was the journalist. He was the recorder. Tina Brown from The New Yorker gave him this assignment, the assignment of the O.J. Simpson trial. And he came out with this famous piece about how the defense was going to play the race card. And 22 years later, we have a series. That's a lot of water under that dam. He is not the transposer. He is in a way, obviously, he's transposing what he saw into journalism. Now, again, in all deference to Jeffrey, never take journalism as full fact. Do your own work. Are we, are we clear on this? I don't go to the movies to get the news. <laughs> are we clear on this? These are all translations. These are all, this is all midwifery. When I see a film based on a historical figure, you know, first of all, it's an impossible proposition. You know, you see the film Chaplin. How can you put Chaplin's life, with all due respect to Sir Richard Attenborough, into two hours? It's, it's, it's undoable. And oftentimes you leave those films, certainly films, because we don't have the benefit of thousands of pages, you leave those films knowing nothing. But you may leave saying, I want to know more about Chaplin. I want to read his book, An Autobiography. Ironically, that's what it's called. Now, TV, going back there to TV, what's happening with Ryan Murphy and taking this anthropology and making it into art, the series, the episodic structure does allow development. It does allow chapters. So in a way, I think this, this errand of taking anthropology and pushing it into art is more successful in short form content in let's call TV content. I think a lot about autobiographies as films or biographies. I gotta keep, I gotta stop saying autobiographies because they're certainly not autobiographies, but Walk the Line, which was Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. It's a really interesting film. It's not even a good film. It's an interesting film. And it's interesting because at best, for about two-thirds of the film, it focuses in on a very slender part of Cash's life, battling with substance. And that's the type of anthropology into art I like. It's shoehorning the whole of anthropology into art, which is the deficit. But taking a piece of myopia about that time, Cash was holed up battling substance and how he and June Carter dealt with it. That's the type of transposition I like. And rather, fascinatingly, rather than being drawn to the magnetism of the central artistic anthropologic result, 
we're drawn to something else. We're drawn to an emotional truth, the parsing of truth, fact-based truth, and emotional truth. And maybe that's where anthropology into art shines the most. Because a lot of people do take the truth from fiction. And I'm not just talking about Star Magazine. <laughs> I'm talking about films. I'm talking about films about historical figures. No matter what you feel about that historical figure, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, MLK, uh, Malcolm X, no matter what you feel about these people, pro or con or both, these are not the facts. This is the hand of an artist. It's like that title card when you're watching a movie on an airplane. The following content has been changed to, you know, allow for time or allow for the fact that you're watching it on the size of a matchbook. <laughs> do your work, do your homework. I think Jeff would agree. Before we bring in Jeff, I was thinking briefly about other forms of this anthropology into art, and sometimes it's the inadvertent anthropology, or it's the reluctant art, or the reluctant anthropology within the art. And vis-a-vis -vis Jeff, I know he's a big Saturday Night Fever fan, 1977, starring John Travolta, uh, John Badham directed. And just to be firm on the record, Saturday Night Fever is not based on a true story. It's based on a fictionalized report. 1976, a New York Magazine article written by Brit a British journalist, no less, Nick Cohen, uh, the article called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, that was the source material for the film. Now, 40 years later, Cohen went on record saying that article was a bit of a come on, was almost an out-and-out -out lie. He never made it into the disco that night to journalize the subjects he wanted to journalize for the article. So he composited figures in the article based on someone he knew from the UK, I believe, and his visual and oral, let's say, observations and recordings. Yes, it's not anthropology to everyone because you may not see that film that way, but I do. It may be a bit of different anthropology. It may be social anthropology. It may be racial anthropology. It's definitely economic anthropology. The sexual anthropology in that there's xenophobic anthropology. It's funny about that film. It was released as R. It was so popular. It was re-released as PG. I saw it when it was re-released as PG, but my parents consented to see me. Or did they consent or did I just do it? Anyway, it's a good story. Uh, they allowed me to see the R-rated version. It was actually the first R-rated film I saw, and I'll give them the credit or discredit. Depends how you see these things. But it was anthropology, and I'm not from Bensonhurst. I'm not from Brooklyn. I don't disco publicly. I only disco privately. But what was going on in that film is more than disco. I was never a disco fan. I like some of the songs even now. But that film is more than about discotheking. It's about being stuck. It's about, it's about working class ethos. It's about bumping into each other when you don't know how you're going to get out of something. That to me was a really cool and still serves today, even now in retrospect, that the film is over 40 years old as a part of anthropology. And that's what's cool about anthropology into art is the distance, is the time. How long is long enough? Is 20 years long enough for OJ? Is 40 years long enough for disco? There's a Lewinsky American crime story coming out, and it's based on Jeff's book. Is it enough time for Monica Lewinsky? Well, the world has changed. What's interesting about Lewinsky, not to get too deep into this, is we have Me Too. And as a creator, as a creative, or as a consultant, because I don't know this for certainty, but Jeff consulted on OJ, and I'm guessing he would do the same for the Lewinsky piece, uh, he can bring now a contemporary ethos to it. But is that detrimental? That topspin, the modern topspin, the world has changed. Or do you just let it be? 
Do you just let it be and just let it be what it was and see how it sits in today? It's hard because audiences may feel it's not a reputable work of art if you don't reflect what's going on today. And that's why, brethren, do not take your news from art. The world turns every night. Have you noticed that? There's no such thing as a slow news night. Nor is there any such thing as a slow CNN chief legal or illegal analyst. (laughs) Today on Murmur, Jeffrey, wait a second. Oh yeah, do you hear that? Yeah. Oh yeah. The night fever, night fever. Today on Murmur, art from anthropology. Oh yeah, I love that song. (laughs) Night fever, Jeffrey Tubin. Disco Tubin. Now this. See what the Knicks gonna pay Frazier? We're never gonna make that much money in our whole life. You know, this is a drag. It's with you today, huh? No, I'm just trying to be doing 2001 times. Yeah, we'll fucking do it. We'll fucking do it. 20, 30 bucks, asshole. You got 20, 30 bucks to blow twice a week. Come on, Tony. Hey, Tony. Man, I'm gonna get myself one of these, you know? Ah, uh, you're never gonna get yourself one of these. These things cost too much money. You never have that kind of money. Hey, you, you know I had you up to here. That's your favorite speech. You're never gonna have that kind of money. Not you, not me, oh. not anybody. Hey, get it You're together before it's all over the street, huh? You see this? It's a Caddy Seville. Michael Nunzio's got one of these. And he's got a Mercedes Benz, too. You know how he got it? He forced his partner to sell out. He gave him a real screw. It's dog eat dog world, right? Everybody's out for what they can get. That's true. They got it all locked up. Ain't nobody gonna give you a chance. Nobody gives you nothing, Joey. Yeah, you know, it's every man for himself. It's a stinking rat race. No advances, no nothing. Just pay their thinking. You gave me a raise. Give me what? A raise. You kidding me? Well, come on, look, see how much it is. You gave me a raise. Thank you. I can't believe this. Wait, whoa, you better look first. I don't gotta look. It don't make no difference. You gave me a raise. That's an important it's thing. It's only two fifty. So what? That's two dollars fifty cents. It ain't much. The important thing is to raise. I think that's really great. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you 350, right? Next week, I'll give you 350. I'll give you a dollar more. Well, wait. Shut up, will you? Four. I'll make it an even four. Never seen anybody so shit ass happy over a crummy 250 raise. Wait a minute. You said $4, didn't you? What the hell are you doing? I just feel like it, right? Girls do that. I got a raise today. How do you like that? Yeah. Why don't you say so during dinner? We could have used the conversation. Put them down. Come here. How much you get? It's gonna be four dollars. It was um, it was two fifty, right? But he raised the raise when he uh, found out I wasn't so dis- you know, disappointed. Four dollars. Yeah. Shit. You know, four dollars buys today. Don't even buy three dollars. I don't see nobody giving you a raise down on employment. Four dollars. I knew you'd piss on it. Go on, just piss on it, right? A race is like you're good, you know what I mean? You know how many times somebody told me I was good in my life? Two, two, twice, two fucking times. This race today in dance, dance at the disco. You sure as fuck never did, asshole.
I don't watch movies to get the news. I rarely watch the news to get the news, but that's a different topic. I certainly don't go to the movies to learn history, but the world keeps spinning. And from that spinning, from that anthropology, art against all odds gets created. Waves of time. And how do those waves of time get car washed into art? And should they get car washed into art? Uh, today is a bit of a car washer himself, uh, today's guest. He is midwifed, whether he knows it or not, art from anthropology. I don't know whether he calls himself an artist in the, on that score. We can ask him. What we can agree on, though, is he is an Emmy award-winning, best-selling author, writer for The New Yorker, former assistant U.S. attorney. And here's something I've always wanted to say. He's CNN's senior legal analyst. His mother once warned him, don't go into journalism because success and failure are so randomly distributed. Sorry, mom, but it's like mom, like son. He's the second biggest Saturday Night Fever fan I know. Good friends call him Disco Tubin. Please welcome to us, Professor Tubin. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin, welcome to Murmur, man. Good to talk to you, Robert. Hey, did you know you were the second biggest fan of that film? And do you know who the first biggest fan is? You know, it's funny. I... I have this weird memory I, I wasn't like a super big film fan but i saw saturday night fever when it came the day it came out the day it opened in theaters wow and uh um, wow. i don't know who the number one fan is perhaps it's you but but just to jump ahead <laughs> yeah. one of the one of the um you know big thrills for me when i was working uh when when they made the uh, oj miniseries uh, based on my book, was to meet John Travolta and spend time with him, and you know, to to see a figure from from my childhood. Wow, um, was was really uh, was really fun. And um, anyway, I, I I don't mean to jump no. jump ahead. No, but, no, no. But can I tell you a John Travolta story? It's your nickel you know, man. <laughs> he, yeah, he was he was such a sort of gracious old fashioned movie star. I mean, everybody was, you know, he was like, you know, it was a very long shoot because it was a 10 hour um, a miniseries. He was going back and forth and doing uh, Cotter during the day and, and uh, the film during the weekend. Sorry, go on. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, that was <laughs> that was way before my time. But, you know, as, as you know, when when people shoot a movie, there's a tremendous amount of, or, or a miniseries, in my case, a tremendous amount of da downtime. Right. And um you know, one, something John would sometimes do just when we were standing around is you would see him break into a couple of dance steps. You know, he doesn't <laughs> look like he does anymore. He's, you know, he's a lot heavier than he used to be. Right. But you could see the grace and you could see the, um, the, the skill was wow. still there. And it was like, wow, that's John Travolta dancing. And it was just a couple of steps. But anyway, I got a big thrill out of that's, that. That's really cool. He could still move, you know, and even in Pulp Fiction, he does his little homage to himself. Of but, course, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, the famous scene with uh, Uma Thurman. Right, yeah. teenage wedding. Say uh, la vie, said the old folks. You know, just to button hook this a little bit, because I actually do want to start with Saturday Night Fever. Uh, the biggest fan, by the way, was Gene Siskel. Did you know this? Um, oh, I did not know that. Yes, the late, great, amazing. Gene Siskel uh, claimed he saw it 17 times um, in 19 in and you saw it about 19 so he's anyway that's why he's a second I'm, I'm teasing um, yeah. he bought uh, one of the suits that Travolta wore 
in the movie. He bought in 1978. Talk about prescience. He paid $2,000 for the suit. He later sold it to Christie's for $145,000. So it was actually 72 times its, its original worth. Uh, he swore by that. Nice investment. Yeah, nice, nice inve- investment if you could see the tea leaves that way. Um, he believed in the film. And, and actually I do too. And I, I kind of want to start there despite the fact that the director is Yale educated. I hope that doesn't change your mind about the film um but do you remember those waves because i think that film does hold a little bit of anthropology and what's interesting before i get your response travolta said you know when he was making that movie he and his friends thought it was a joke because disco was sort of over not to get too in the weeds on disco but he thought it was over and that film kind of resurrected it so that was a kind of boomerang but do you remember those times around that film how it was seen. I mean, you were young at the time. Um, you yeah, were... I was 18. I mean, I, because it was 1978, right? Right. I mean, 77, 78. Uh, yeah. yeah, no. I, and so I was really too young to go to discos. Um, so I wasn't really part of, of the disco scene. But what I remember about the, um, the, the, the movie is it's really about class as much as it is about, you know, dancing and, oh, yeah. and, you know, everybody remembers the great scenes, but, you know, uh, the, you know, the great dance sequences. But, you know, I remember the scenes in the paint store where John Travolta worked. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he sees yeah. the older guys working there and they, they've been there for years and they have their aching backs. And Travolta is looking at that as his future. And the disco, beyond being a place where he can show off, is a place where he can escape. Mm and escape from his economic fate so you know yes it's you know it's it's a great musical and everybody loves the bg's the bg's BGs, and it's not just the bg's it's uh, you know all the great disco superstars but it's it's a story about you know economics mr fusco come for what i got come tony tony come on things got a little out of the collar don't you think what are you talking about I don't want to lose you, Tony. You're a good kid. Customers like you. I want you to stay on. You mean I ain't fired? No. Come on. Jesus Christ, don't believe this. You got a future here, Tony. Here, Harold's with me 18 years since I opened. Uh, Mike, 15 years, huh? Come on, now, give Harold a hand. He's making a mess. And also, his girlfriend, or, or, you know, the dance partner, she's not the girlfriend exactly. Um, where she's terrified and she's talking about how she has to sleep with her boss to um, to keep her job. I mean, there, there's a lot going on in that movie beyond the dancing. There is. I remember when Travolta at the paint store, his boss is, is kind of pitching to this will be yours one day. And it was a kind of melancholic idea, you know, and it kind of struck me at the time too. Um, so I agree. I think there's more of cast, this class, it was a cast system, but there's more of class uh, in there as well. Do you remember, or did you ever access the original source material of that film? Well, I, I um, you know, I read it when it came out because I was a big reader of New York Magazine. It was Nick Cohn, I think, was the writer, it was, wasn't it? It was Nick Cohn, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. 
what what is your recollection of it now? Because Con, just to give you some uh, stones to skip, he um, recently, not too long ago, because the, the film just had an anniversary, came out with the fact that the, the the article was a bit of a lie. It was a bit of a come on. He actually said my story was a fraud. He arrived to the club to do research on this Bay Ridge club, Odyssey two thousand and one, and there was a fight, and someone I guess vomited on him. <laughs> not to sound too uh, graphic, too early in the morning, and he left. But he took some of those reminiscences and married them actually with a friend of his um, from England because he was English and and the amalgam was this article. What do you think of that as a kind of mosaic of let's not not to make this about journalism but as a mosaic that led to the film? Do you feel it it leavens the film or do you feel it makes it even a more interesting bit of anthropology? You know, I I have very strict rules about the kind of journalism I do. I mean, I don't invent dialogue. I don't invent scenes. I don't, you know, I, I play by very traditional rules. But those are my rules. Um, that's not uh, everybody's rules. And I, you know, especially once you start translating um, the... Uh, you know, journalism into a film, I, you know, I, all I care about is the film. I don't care if it's mm. factually accurate. I don't care if there really was a figure like Tony Monero. Um, I care about the emotional truth of, of the entertainment. Um, you know, it, it's not a documentary. It, it, and um, so I have to say, you know, Nick Cohn's journalistic practices in the source material don't really add or detract at all from my experience of the movie because my experience, I experienced it as the movie. I mean, that's all I care about. Yeah. And, and I, I, it wasn't even an ethical uh, stone I was tossing. It was just, it's a little more complicated as you say, but I agree there's church and state about this sort of thing, but I do want to talk to you about chicken or egg as we're speaking with Jeff, Jeffrey Tubin here on murmur, uh, this idea of anthropology becoming art. And I'm using these kind of dime store words. What I want to talk to you about is not the idea of things based on real events, but translating big world events back into fiction. Films aren't documentaries, but in a way, they ha- they do translate history. Do you think there's an upside and a downside? Because some people can't separate it. You're this saying you a, can, but some is, people can't. This is a hard area, and I've actually dealt with it directly with the screenwriters for the OJ series. You know, um, who were talking about, you know, is this accurate? Is that accurate? Um, there's a Patty Hearst movie in the works. There's a miniseries in the works for my Monica Lewinsky book. Um, w- one of the things I do not do is write screenplays, and so I. You know, I'm happy to offer advice, but I happily admit I don't know how to do it myself. You know, I I think there are um, very different rules for um, entertainment docudramas as opposed to journalism. And I am not averse to uh, changing facts in those uh, in those circumstances, as long as um, the emotional truth remains. And I recognize that that's a very difficult thing to define, but I am not a, uh, I'm not a stickler on historical drama. Historical drama to me is always more drama than history. (laughs) And that that's okay. Um, as long as, as long as it's labeled that way. And, you know, you're right that that raises the risk that people will get, you know, the the wrong idea about what really happened. But, 
so what? I mean, I, 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 I think it's a, um, it's a risk worth taking because going back to Shakespeare and probably before artists have always taken historical events and used them as jumping off points for, um, uh, for, for, for drama that that is not technically historically accurate. I'm going to use the R word, lowercase responsibility. You know, I don't think it's the artist's responsibility. I, I don't assume anyone's, t- it's not about true or false. It's just, you know, these works should be a leaping off point, right? I mean, you're an informed viewer. Just to look at the, the pejorative of this, do you think, what is the irresponsibility of it? I mean, what what is a mismanagement, not you per se, but a mismanagement of a factor truism due to a viewer. I mean, we can't put text on a screen saying what you're about to see is blah, blah, blah. We can't do that for everything, right? So where does the responsibility lie with the viewer? Again, the lowercase r responsibility. Uh, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I'll give you an example of what I think is a, a particularly problematic view, example of using history for art. Uh, Oliver Stone's JFK, um, which is very clearly intended to be based on fact, and I think is bogus. I mean, as as history, I think it's an entertaining movie, but it certainly contributed to the impression of what happened in the assassination, which was false, in my opinion. And um, that's something that I think is... Um, it's too bad. I, I don't think there should be any sort of, you know, regulatory commission that, that <laughs> decides what's, what's good and what's bad. I mean, you know, this is all up to people's impressions. But, you know, that to me was an example of sort of misuse of historical mm. events. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a capital crime and, and I enjoyed the movie, but you know, if you're getting your history from that movie, I think you're just not getting anything like an accurate story of what really happened. Does art have the potential, forget just film art, you know, episodic, and I think one thing, the OJ episodic that Ryan and those guys and you did, I think long form can do this well, because you could show multiple views, you don't have the ticking clock in the same way. But does art, you know, can art draw battle lines? You know, I, I was thinking of Stone again. I was thinking of W, that film, you know, and I'm not saying people who went to that didn't already have those opinions, but, you know, can these things draw battle lines? Uh, you know, what, what, what did you think of Robert Shapiro? What did you think of Marsha Clark? Um, and again, it's incumbent on us to kind of go the next step, right? But we're a lazy goddamn society when we view things, right? Um, I mean, is, am I making a mountain out of a molehill or does this really do... Does this really form opinions? Oh, it totally forms opinions. I mean, I think many, you know, people get their ideas about um, what happens in in history from art as much as from the news. Uh, (laughs) So so it it, it can it can happen. You know, like, for example, um, Vice about uh, about Dick Cheney. Um, I I think most of the people going to that movie uh, are already ill-disposed towards Cheney and, and have that view reinforced. Uh, but I don't think it's, I, I, I'm not worried about people 
you know, getting, getting wrong impressions. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't view it as a, um, you know, it's like a big problem. I mean, I, I think it, it all, it, it's all in the mix and, and I'm all, and I'm happy to see uh, artists experiment with both, you know, stories based on fact and invented stories. I was thinking of, speaking of Jeffrey Tubin, I was thinking of uh, Stone on a different level of, of war films. And then I started thinking of your mom, who was a correspondent during the Vietnam War, and and correct any of this record uh, if you if you need to. Uh-huh. Um, no, you're right. She certainly was. And that was a kind of I hate the word game changer or a gateway drug. It changed the way the 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 midwifing happens between the real. I mean, it was one, it was the first televised war in many ways. Do you recall? And you were again young at the time. Not to bring you back, man, but do you remember those moments as a family, or your mom, or, or those images of your mom being a correspondent and back Back here at home, your primer on taking something real and translating it through media or art. Um, well, certainly it was the most profound journalist experience of my mother's life. I mean, it was 1966, so I was six years old, and I really have the only thing I remember um, the, the, was going to get her shots. She had to get a lot of shots to to go uh, to Vietnam, and I went with her, and I remember being shocked and horrified by that but i really <laughs> remember when she was there um the uh it, it's interesting you know that was such an intense experience you know after my mother retired she did a tremendous amount of you know travel she loved to see the world and the one place she never wanted to go back to was vietnam because her memories were so intense there she didn't want to um sort of sully them or I mean it's just sort of a weird I was always surprised that she didn't she didn't want to go back because so many people even you know in the military and and in journalists were especially interested in going back and and that was one place that was sort of she she wanted to leave in her memory you know I I think that war was you know again it's all sort of before my time i've appreciated vietnam not in real time but as someone who really learned about it after the fact i mean i was just watching not too long ago ken burns extraordinary documentary about it Mm. um and you know the the horror of vietnam is something that i experienced not in real time because i just was too young what about those films? You know, again, this was a different time. It's a different nugget. You know, I was thinking of Francois Truffaut, the French filmmaker. He actually thought war films were dangerous, not because of accuracy, but because they romantic. You know, film naturally romanticizes something. And let's extend the idea: film, TV, moving content, art can preternaturally romanticize something. Forget facts. Do you buy into that? That some that something artistic can romanticize. Uh, and and de- declaw it, you know, declaw an experience naturally. You know, I, I suspect that's true. Um, I, I really, I want to be very careful to talk about war in a way that makes clear that I've never experienced either as, you know, a, a firsthand or as a journalist, so right. I don't want to pretend I'm any kind of expert. I, I, it's funny, we, we're spending a lot of time talking about Oliver Stone. You know, <laughs> Platoon is a, is a movie that I, that I love, but, you know, I'm thinking as we're having this conversation here uh, about um, the almost ballet-like battle scene. Yes, and, and the and death their, of Willem Dafoe. Yeah, the death of Willem Dafoe. The death Defoe. of Willem Dafoe yeah. is, yeah. is I, I don't know if you want to call it glamorized, but, but it, it, it's, it's, of course, sad. But, 
there's almost something romantic about it. And I can see why um, someone would say that that is glamorizing. It's interesting, you know, that experience of being in a cinema really isolates that. And it, it, you know, like horror, like horror films, those are things I think cinema experiences do really well, speaking with Jeffrey Tubin. One thing I want to say about Apocalypse Now, though, I always thought was interesting, you know, Coppola wanted to go to Vietnam during Vietnam and make that m- movie. Did you know that? That was actually mm. his... I did not know that. His, it's made in the Philippines, right? It's made in the Philippines. His original idea, he turned to, I guess, George Lucas. They were all out of USC and said, here's my idea. And Lucas, in one of many wise decisions, said, you know, good luck with all that. Uh, they never they never went. Uh, so we're talking about Oliver Stone maybe too much. Let's talk about a different Oliver. Oliver North, a guy you may have known. Well, I did. You know, it's funny. I, I was one of the prosecutors in his case, but later I profiled him in The New Yorker. So I, I, you know, that was now a long time ago. But but yes, I've had I've had a lot of experiences with Oliver North on on both sort of in in very different ways. L- lucky you. You know, I guess the question yeah. is, have you ever interacted with something that couldn't or shouldn't be translated into art? You know, I'm not using Oliver Ollie North as an example, or but just to bridge it. Have you ever run across whether it's Martha Stewart or Ilian Gonzalez or anyone you've worked with or saw from a distance? Any swath of history that shouldn't that is that is to its deficit to be fictionalized. Well, I, I, I guess I've never asked myself precisely that question because you know I don't do dramatizations. I, I guess one thing that that occurs to me is sort of is the Holocaust, and um, I wouldn't you know, but but of course that's been dramatized uh, many times. Uh, Schindler's List. You know, you, you could go on and on and, um, you know, other holocausts like Cambodia. And I mean, they, they have they have been dramatized as well. So, you know, I really consider that decision, what to dramatize and what not to dramatize as sort of not my department. I mean, I, I don't think I am fit to make that decision. And I'd rather evaluate the art once it's made, then decide whether it should be made in the first place, if that makes sense. It, it does. 1997, the run of his life, People versus O.J. Simpson, a book uh, you authored, translated. It's funny, I was thinking of 2016, we had both the the series, the American crime story, People versus O.J. Simpson, and also O.J. Made in America, the ESPN offering. Were you able to divorce yourself then, having lived through it? You know, again, as as you're making the the kind of partitions between what you had experienced and what not, that's something obviously you lived through. You were on the ground early. <laughs> you know, you uh, right. Tina Brown had assigned you to write a story, and and the rest, as you said, is your history and maybe part of a large part of your career. Were you able to divorce yourself watching those works from the reality? Well, I, I guess. It's funny that you mentioned Tina Brown. One of the things that Tina always said was, you know, good stories are always timely. I mean, here they decide to make a a miniseries out of O.J. 20 years after uh, the the, the event. Right, right. Uh, It it, it turns out to be right after uh, Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and 
you know, the, about the relationship between the African-American community and the police, which is really the serious theme of the OJ, uh, of the OJ case. And, you know, th- th- my book and in many respects, my uh, the, the miniseries that Ryan Murphy and, and my other colleagues made was about race. It was about um, how um, race permeates uh, so much of our criminal justice system. Now it's about a lot of other things. And it was also terrifically entertaining and funny and bizarre. But who would have guessed that 20 years later, the 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 OJ story would be so topical because <laughs> the country was in yeah. uh, again a um, you know in a national conversation about African Americans and the police, uh, and, and I think that just shows that the, the enduring appeal of you know important stories that these issues never really go away. The same thing you know could be said about you know the Clinton Lewinsky story, which is now twenty years old, and you know, looks different in the wake of the Me Too movement. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, I, I think that just shows, you know, the, the, the power of important stories that the issues that engage us never really disappear. You know, it's interesting as we get to a few final thoughts with Jeffrey Tubin. it's interesting, and you know the world changed, not just, you know, uh, anthropologically, but telecommunications. You know, I was thinking of, what it must have been like you covering the OJ trial, you know, email wasn't around, note to self, note to anyone listening, you know, cell phones. Uh, so it's, it, we, we've, we've spun the world around in many ways, not just, uh, as you say, uh, th- these other kind of hardcore ways, but, you know, ways that r- r- change our life. How does time work in this equation? And here's, here's the point, and, and to get your response on that question, you know, the old trope, comedy equals tragedy, you know, minus time, or it feels like art is, you know, anthropology minus time or plus time. What is the value in telling these stories 20 years later? Yes, it proves their iconoclasticness, but does it allow us to see these stories because it's been a while? Do you know, forget forget the Hollywood of it all. Why does 20 years benefit this kind of storytelling of OJ or something similar versus five years. Uh, can we digest it in a new way because our world has changed? Or do you think it puts a little dust on it because our world has changed so much? I, I think it's very much the former. I, I think um, it, it's, it's a good thing that we can look at an old story through new eyes. Um, I, I think uh, we, we become wiser. We, we gain in wisdom by seeing facts we thought we knew in a, uh, a, a you know, th- through a new light. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in the midst of, of looking at the Lewinsky story again. Um, you know, it does look different now. And it does look, you know, like, you know, we talk about subjects like power imbalances between men and women in the workplace. You know, we, we are, we do think differently about that. Uh, and, I, I and that's a good thing. Um, but 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 do you, do you have to exercise restraint? Let's say if you see a draft of something that was based, you know, not to get back into the facts thicket, but you know, it's hard to let everything go, right? I mean, you you did cover this stuff soup to nuts. The Me Too movement in Monica, let's say, as a, as a as a primer, does your antenna ever go up and say, wait, this was this needs to be told the way it was? 
not factually, all, but all the time, emotionally, all, all the time. yeah, no, no, yeah, emotionally. But 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 that's what I mean. That's what's interesting is that you know looking at the emotions of you know 1998 that were real then that do look different now, and sometimes it's painful to look to look at you know things we thought in 1998 yes. and thought god this was uh, and and look you know we're having a national conversation now about blackface yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. and i don't uh have a uh you know fortunately it's no blackface in my past but i mean there were <laughs> you know blackface was was you know widely practiced um for a long time in this country and now god it looks so I mean, it, it was always terrible, but it looks really terrible now. And and, and I think that's a uh, that's a great thing to study and to um, examine both how it felt at the time and and how it looks how it looks now. You, you know, there there are last two questions. So graciously, another slow news day here in the U.S. Yeah. he's been giving us some time, Jeffrey Tubin. It never ends. You know, it's funny. I always think. Does everything change or nothing changes? You know, you're bringing back things that really, it's it's melancholy, right? You know, issues around blackface haven't changed and, and certain issues have and, and for another day. But, you know, I was thinking of some, I can't tell if they're purveyors, Jeff, or craftspeople. And this is not to be to name names. I'm going to name names, but not in a bad way. I was thinking of someone like Frank Rich, you know, Frank, uh, writer for New York Magazine, you know, erstwhile New York Times critic, became involved in Veep. Right. And also something like John Grisham. And I was thinking of like people who cross these lines. Again, not to sound so operatic about it. Do you think there's an interesting chemistry experiment going on there, though? You know, with, with Frank Rich consulting producer on Veep or John Grisham writing about the law profession fictionalized. Hell, Clinton wrote a novel, right? You know, are, are these craftspeople? Are they purveyors? Are they smart hires? What What is the bumper sticker for these sorts of figures who operate in one world exquisitely and then help the surgery of another world like anthropology and art? It probably reflects the sort of the, 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 the and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but sort of the, the integration of that the, the lines between categories have, 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 uh, have been breaking down for a long time. You know, the difference between sculpture and painting, you know, the, the, the distinctions between the written word and, and, and art, you know, someone like Barbara Kruger, who works, who works, um, words into her, uh, into, you know, art objects. Um, the, the, the lines between sort of, you know, a, a journalist and, uh, someone who makes, who, who makes films, um, you know, in my journalism, I try to keep bright lines, but I do think a, a lot of these lines, are uh are breaking down and and, and that's okay with me I, I i don't i like the fact that you know someone like frank rich is doing this i, I don't um it, it, it i i don't feel like there is some you know church of church and state division that you know when it comes to art well since i was thinking as we close off i was thinking of tom wolf someone you met I believe, as you were a young, mm, yeah. young man, I'm sure he's... Uh, yeah, I interviewed him a number of times when I was in college. And passed not too long ago. I think a lot of people forget, period, but a lot of people also forget that he wrote the right stuff or the source material for the right stuff. Oh, my God, the right stuff. Maybe the best 
work that he ever did. I, I agree. Is, I agree. Which is saying a lot. As scrupulously as I understand, scrupulous nonfiction. You know, it's interesting, and he brought in this, I don't know if this kind of wording makes you cringe or not, new journalism. You know, and I was thinking of where did it start with people like Wolf, and even like Truman Capote, hello. Like, we've always been you know, crossing the beams. Well, not always. No, I mean, not, not always. I mean, I do think, you know, the 60s, would, you know, within Cold Blood and Tom Wolfe's, you know, early work, you know, the use of fictional techniques, gay police, uh, you know, the, you know, creation of scenes um, with journalistic uh, values, um, that's um, something that um, is... Uh, is it was new in the '60s? It was not always around, mm, and and mm. that's something that I, I you know I've taken advantage of and I've tried to emulate. Uh, but it's not. Um, but it, but but it, it was new. This was not something that was done uh, all throughout uh, the history, even of modern journalism. Unfortunately, you know they are now buzzing me with uh, news that I need to go to work. Uh, well, the, the last question is: Has have all stories? There's- have all stories been told? Do you think this will persist because all stories have been told on a baseline level? Or do you think it's just kind of fun to do and an interesting Frankenstein monster to erect? I'm, I'm, I'm in the Frankenstein school. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm for, I am for experimentation. I am for breaking rules. I am for doing stuff that, that has not been done before. Whether it, you know, some experiments fail. But I am not, I suppose I am now, God help us, sort of, you know, on the uh, very much among the older side of, of working journalists. But I don't have these sort of grumpy rules about you can't do that, you can't do this. It's like, like give it a try and see if it works. I'm all for that. Apologies to Anderson and Wolf for keeping you later. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks, man. We'll catch up with you again. Thanks so much. All righty, Robert. My pleasure. It was fun. Man, I love that song. Is that cheesy? I love that song. Oh, man. Am I cheesy? No. Am I? Email me. Murmurradio at gmail.com. Let me know. (laughs) I love that song. You know what's interesting about the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever, which completely blew up and completely redefined before my bodyguard and before Batman, uh, Princess Batman, um, redefined the amount of power, the amount of efficacy, the amount of sheer power and force a movie soundtrack could have. That's where it started to me. If you look at the track listing on that soundtrack, How Deep Is Your Love is the second track. And what's amazing to me, in my own stupid way, that to me is such the ending of the film. 
you know, it's it's such the ending. You cannot think of that music and not think of the ending of the film and vice versa. So it's ironic they pushed it to the top because it's such a great song. It was released, did really well. How deep is your love? I should have asked Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, we'll have to have him back. <laughs> I want to thank Jeffrey Tubin for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. But you could be with us anytime. You could be with me anytime. Wouldn't that be nice? Download, subscribe, share, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Go to the website, murmurradio.com, one word. If you have a subject you would like me to handle on the show, murmurradio at gmail.com. Email me the subject. I will match it with a guest. Maybe we'll spin some records. These are the good times. Okay, no more disco. I promise. (laughs) Until uh, the next murmur, of course. See ya.